You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian, and this is the school I go to, and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. With a population in the millions of trillions, parasites are able to evolve at a faster pace than just about anything on Earth. Through this extreme and rapid evolution, parasites are able to come up with new, innovative ways to attach to a host species, whether it be in the sky or down on the ground. Beth McDougall Shackleton studies the way in which parasites evolve in order to find hosts. She brings her expertise to the Western Science Speaks podcast to explain how parasitism became the most popular lifestyle choice on Earth. Here we go. Can you explain to us in your own words what a parasite is and what you specifically look at? You bet. So a parasite, very simply, is just defined as any any living thing that lives on a, a host individual or inside a host individual. It takes resources, usually in the form of food, from the host individual. And in doing that, the parasite increases its own fitness and it decreases the fitness, the, the growth or the survivorship of the host. Right. And from that point, how does it begin to reproduce and really you know, start its own colony within the host? Yeah, well, I mean, the, it, that, that's a hard question, Henry, because there's, there's so many different types of parasites out there. Probably there's uh, upwards of 50 million species of, of parasites right. in the world, probably more species of parasites than of hosts. And, and so the ways that they, that they reproduce are, are super diverse and, and super varied. But a typical parasite, if there is such a thing, would, would get inside the, the host, um, get, get inside perhaps the, the, the cells of the host, if we're talking about a really tiny, small-bodied parasite. And it would use the host cell's machinery to, to make many copies of itself. So some parasites, in theory, couldn't successfully invade me because they're prenaturally disposed to mice or something. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's some parasites that you don't have to worry about at all because some parasites can be really, really host-specific. Um, and, and so, uh, for example, my, my group works with uh, a, a, group of spe- a group of parasites called the avian malaria parasites. They're relatives of malaria that infects humans but they can't survive within us. And so it's not actually putting us at risk to uh, study these, these strains of parasite. Okay, what is the connection with parasites to host evolution? Right, parasites can have a lot of different effects on, on their hosts, and, and because of that, they have a lot of um, ways in which they can affect the evolution of, of the host populations. Over the short term, parasites can affect the behavior of, of their hosts. That could be something as simple as, um, uh, inducing what we call sickness behavior. When, when you get a virus or a bacterial right. infection, you probably feel kind of bad and, and you uh, become lethargic and, and uh, don't, don't move around much. Uh, parasites can also um, manipulate the behavior of their host in such a way as to make the parasite better able to be transmitted to new host individuals. So if you think of the rabies virus, for example, mm. once, once it's transmitted to a dog, it alters the behavior of the dog um, and it also it, it alters the physiology as well. So so the um, the the dog will will begin salivating a lot more um, 
uh, and and also become a lot more aggressive, and and that and both of those things will increase the likelihood that the uh, that the virus can spread from the infected dog into a new a new dog and sort of perpetuate itself that way. So viruses or parasites in general can affect the behavior of their hosts. Certainly, they affect the the fitness of of the host. So whether uh, w- whether they sur- whether the host can survive or not, and whether the host can reproduce or not. And because parasites affect the fitness, then they they place what we call evolutionary selection pressures on on the host. And so, over long periods of evolutionary time, we would see um, the development of things like complex immune systems, like like we have. Right. Uh, do we see any more subtle kind of changes in personality uh, as a result of the parasite? If if I'm grumpy in the morning to my girlfriend, can I say I must get gun invaded last night or something like that? Maybe maybe <laughs> you can blame that on the parasite. Yeah, there, uh, there there are so many species of parasite out there, and it's it, it's it's possible that some of them could have like all you know very subtle sub detectable effects. Um, other awesome examples of parasites affecting the behavior of their host are um, toxoplasma parasites, the so-called kitty litter parasites. Um, that that's that's a, a parasite that's got a really great adaptation. Really I, d- I great. don't know what that is. Could you uh, okay, describe yeah. it? Sure. Yeah, toxoplasma is just a, a, a single-celled organism, and it spends part of its life cycle part of its life cycle inside uh, the body of of a rodent, a mouse or a rat, and then to complete its life cycle, it also needs to spend part of its time inside a cat. So the job that toxoplasma parasites have to accomplish is to get from the rodent, from the mouse or the rat, into a cat. And the way that they accomplish that is to co-opt the brain and the behavior of the rodent, and they make it uh, much, uh, m- much more tolerant of taking risks. So mice or rats that are affected with toxoplasma are less fearful of, of cats. And this, of course, increases their probability of uh, that their risk of, of being captured and eaten. By that a is cat. incredible, and that's how yeah. the parasite makes the jump. So it can, uh, yeah, a- affect behavior in that way, in a way that's that's bad, clearly bad for the host uh, mouse, but it's it's great for the parasite. I mean, that's an incredible evolution. Just the the mechanisms that go into that. How far back can we date parasites? Is there anything we can go and look at and say, okay, this behavior wasn't there a thousand years ago, but now they're doing this? We think that um, parasitism as a life as a life strategy has evolved probably hundreds and hundreds of times, and uh, the earliest parasites were probably uh, the the viruses. And unfortunately, we know so little about the evolutionary history of viruses. But there's lots of good evidence suggesting that viruses may be very, very ancient, um, maybe as as ancient as as the first uh, living things. And uh, on the topic of evolution, what specific processes do you study? Sure. Well, uh, so a a lot of my work um, uh, involves involves interactions between hosts, mostly songbirds, and and the parasites, uh, mostly avian malaria. Uh, And and so we, we, we ask, for example, uh, if, if birds are infected by malaria parasites, does that affect uh, the, the way they interact with, with other, other birds? Does it affect social interactions um, within their species? Does it affect which individuals are attractive as mates? We also study whether uh, being, being parasitized affects the ability that birds have to, to migrate. So uh, does, 
do, do parasitic infections affect the success of birds in, in, in seasonal migration, moving from, from, say, the boreal forest in Canada down to the wintering grounds, maybe in, in Peru. So we, uh, so, but, but in addition to uh, studying parasites and, and their interactions with hosts, we're also really interested in, in sexual selection. So um, how, how birds might use song or smell or other sort of physical uh, or behavioral characteristics to, to choose the best mate for them. Are songbirds one of the most vulnerable species out there to parasites? You might think that because uh, birds and, and migratory birds in, in particular have, have come under a lot of scrutiny and people uh. are concerned about uh, the potential that they're, that they're spreading disease all around the world. In fact, I would say that any, any multicellular organism uh, is, is vulnerable to, to parasites. Birds are sort of a, a really dramatic, obvious example of, of species that um, have, have been affected uh, by, by parasites. And if you think of, for example, the, the, the birds, the, the native birds in Hawaii, there are... Right, yeah. we did a podcast on that this summer, kind okay. of the oral history of that. Yeah, yeah, so really tragic examples of how um, being exposed to, to new parasites with the arrival of, of humans and human-associated pests can, uh, can just devastate uh, uh, local, local wildlife yeah. populations. But I, I would say that anything and any form of life out there, e- even bacteria, actually, even really simple organisms are vulnerable to, to parasites. Right, and they're everywhere. I mean, I sound like a six-year-old asking this, but can a parasite get to a bird in the sky? Like, how does a bird contract it? Yeah, uh, most most birds probably contract most of their parasites uh, from 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 the drinking water, right. or the other big source is um, parasites being transferred from one individual to another by the by by a biting insect, for example, by a mosquito. That that's how birds contract malaria. A mosquito bites one infected individual and becomes infected itself and uh, infects another another individual. So uh, insects are a big source of, uh, of, of the spread of uh, infectious disease in birds. Contaminated water supplies contamination of, of the soil would be another. Uh, but, but yeah, th- there are some, some parasites, some viruses, for example, that can, can be airborne. Would you say it's an inevitable part of a songbird's life that they'll have to deal with a parasite invasion at some point? Absolutely. There are so many more species of parasite than there are of hosts that it's, it's um, an unwinnable game to try to avoid being um, exposed at all to parasites. Instead, the way that birds seem to deal is to uh, develop pretty robust immune systems that um, can, can sort of mitigate the damage of, of being exposed to a parasite. What happens if a mother and a father both infected have a child What's the result of that in the in the offspring? Yeah, in in birds, uh, it, it, it depends partly on on the parasite, and and some parasites are a lot more harmful than others, whereas others are more benign. But typically, we see that uh, if if you if you become infected during the breeding season, birds are, are are likely to to abandon their nests or or be unable to provide care to offspring, and so uh, then then that nest would typically fail, and and the babies would all die. All right. And what do the parasites get out of all this? I guess just somewhere to be and exist and thrive. Yeah. They need the host. What happens if they, they don't they, get one? Yeah. They, they just they, die? Uh, that, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's an interesting, an interesting question because, yeah, a, a parasite that, that can't find a host or that can't infect a host is an evolutionary dead end. But at the same time, you can think 
isn't it in the best interest of the parasite to infect the host but maybe not make it too sick? Because if you want to mm. think like a parasite, the best outcome is to, to have a host but who's keep it healthy. Who's extremely fit, yeah. Yeah, who's fit so that you're not in a, in, in a sinking ship. Yeah, right. so, so that's, that, that, that's a balance, a, a trade-off, we call it, that the parasites are, are constantly making. Uh, from a group perspective, in one of your papers, it says that exposure to parasites is one of the costs of group living. How do songbirds and other species learn to balance this? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right that um, parasites are, are typically acquired by, by close contact by, uh, with, with other members of your species. And so the, the, more, the more densely packed or the more social uh, a species is, the more contact it's going to have with, with parasites that can affect it. So absolutely, that, that's a downside of, of being social or, or living in a group or interacting with other members of, of your species. Um, possible defenses against it that birds or other organisms have got include uh, ways of, of recognizing other individuals that are currently sick. So, and and if, if you think of humans, for example, we, we have really strong, almost ingrained uh, revulsion towards when we see somebody sneezing or coughing or, or blowing their nose on, on their sleeve. And, and so we tend to recognize and avoid mm. individuals that, that might transmit infectious infection to us. Right. And, and do they pick up the same things within their group? Well, we're just uh, we, we we've just been testing that, and and we know what we know now that we didn't know a few years ago, is that if uh, birds become exposed to, for example, malaria, which is the the main parasite that we work with, it does actually alter um, the, the the chemical composition of the oil on their feathers, and so what that suggests is that it alters the way that the individual smells, and and so that would suggest that yes, birds should be able to to smell out individuals that are healthy versus individuals that are sick and, and avoid the, the sick ones. But one of my students has recently tested this idea and found, interestingly, birds don't appear to respond to, to those cues. Even though sick individuals smell different than healthy individuals, birds don't avoid the sick individuals, which raises the almost chilling possibility that maybe uh, the, the alteration in smell is not for the benefit of, of birds to allow them to avoid sick individuals, maybe it's a signal engineered by the parasite to uh, make the birds perhaps more attractive to, to mosquitoes, to vectors, to actually ensure the survival, the, the transmission of the parasite. Do some breeds of songbirds live on their own because of this? Do they get isolated? Uh, there are the, certainly in, in, in birds and, and songbirds that there's, there's a whole, the, the whole range, the whole continuum between species like, like zebra finches that, that are really, really social and are always huddling up together and grooming each other and uh, they, they go crazy if you try to keep them in isolation. You can contrast that with other birds that are very, very territorial and almost solitary for most of their, most of their life. Um, but, but, but any bird that wants to uh, reproduce itself is going to have to come into contact with uh, at least um, an opposite sex individual and, and its offspring. So yes, yeah, so some birds and, and song sparrows, the ones that I particularly study the most, they tend to be very territorial. And who knows, may, maybe this is um, sort of an adaptation to, to avoid uh, infectious disease. Right. Let's stay on the topic of songbirds. They're kind of your animal of choice within your work. What other processes do you look at? 
Yeah, so besides uh, host parasite evolution, my students and I are really interested in uh, movement ecology. So why, why is it that, that some individuals um, remain very close to where they were born uh, and, and other ones disperse, they, they move far away from where they were born and, and begin to breed in, in a different place as adults? We're, we're interested also in, in seasonal migration. Again, there's a lot of variation. Uh, even within a species, uh, some birds uh, migrate um, not, not very far at all uh, from, from the breeding grounds. They might spend the winter really close to where they breed, whereas other individuals in the same species might migrate hundreds or even thousands of miles. So, so movement ecology, dispersal and migration, uh, and, and we've also always been really interested in, in mate choice, what, what sort of uh, cues are, are birds using to, to choose the best mates for them. Right. I think this is such an interesting topic because if you just look at the numbers, we're going to lose in terms of if we try to eradicate parasites, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. nodding. Uh, parasites <laughs> are, are a huge, important, they're actually a really important component of, of ecosystems. Yeah. And if we were able, even if we could eradicate all parasites in the world, I wouldn't recommend that, that we do that because the, uh, the, the effects on on uh, wild populations would just be impossible to forecast and, and right. probably really, really cataclysmic. So in an ideal world, what would our relationships with parasites look like? And moving forward, what is our responsibility to protect other species from them? Okay, yeah, so I, I think the best thing that we can do in, in our relationships with parasites are, are to understand how the, um, the, the, the way that we interact with parasites, can ju just as parasites can affect our evolution, the way that we treat them can affect the evolution of parasites. So if you think about you washing your hands with uh, antibacterial soap, for example, what you're doing uh, is, is placing a selection pressure on parasites. You, you are favoring, inadvertently, you're favoring drug-resistant forms. Mm. Uh, uh, Such a deeper way to look at washing my hands. Yes, <laughs> mm. it is. I'm not telling you not to wash your hands, but, uh, but, 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 but be aware that we can be, press, uh, we can be putting these selection pressures on parasites. And by, for example, cleaning up the water supply, uh, we, we now know that we can uh, steer the evolution of, of parasites towards more, more benign, less, less harmful forms. And, and so I think that's, that's the way to go forward, is to, to understand that uh, act, actions that individual humans take actually affect the evolution of, of parasites. And, and so the, the more we understand these organisms, that the better equipped we are to, to deal with them. Uh, now, in terms of responsibility for, for taking care of wildlife health, I'd say that we, again, we, we need to have a, a better appreciation for how interconnected everything is. A, a lot of parasites that have jumped, for example, into, say, wild populations of salmon are, uh, have, have jumped from, uh, uh, for example, salmon farms. And, and likewise, a lot of uh, diseases that affect wild birds have, uh, have, have jumped to wild birds from, say, chicken, um, chicken farms. And, and so we, we really need to, uh, to, to, to be careful about uh, the, the potential, the risk of unleashing, uh, unleashing various microbes into the wild. Right. And I was doing a little bit of research before this podcast, and there seem to be a lot of stories about humans contracting parasites and not really knowing what was wrong with them for extended periods of time until, you know, an off chance they had a stool sample where it became obvious. But is it hard to tell 
if uh, a human's being infected by some forms of parasites? Uh, sometimes it is, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the problem is that um, especially some, some parasites, the, the effects that they have on the human are just really, really, uh, really general. You know, parasites that cause just sort of tiredness or general malaise or achiness that there's no, that there's not necessarily a, a smoking gun. Right. Uh, I, I would just I would just make the point that uh, parasites are not only super abundant and and really interesting, but they're also very very important parts of of ecosystems. And uh, right, they're not a hundred percent evil. Not necessarily. Just ninety nine. <laughs> Thank you.